history of uh, railroad worker militants goes back to the 1870s. We're talking going back to the 19th century that uh, uh, American railroads have traditionally resisted basic safety uh, upgrades. Uh, they put profit over workers' lives. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. Early Thursday morning, the Biden administration brokered a tentative agreement that, at least for now, has averted a nationwide rail strike by tens of thousands of workers. The main issue was not money, but quality of life issues, including a draconian attendance policy that had workers on call 24-7 for lengthy periods of time and left many rail workers afraid of being fired just for going to the doctor. Labor radio show host Rick Smith talked with labor historian Eric Loomis on Wednesday before the tentative agreement. Loomis explained how the issues that brought rail workers to the edge of a major strike trace back to a long history of abuse by railroad bosses and a tradition of militants by the men and women who work on the nation's railroads. And in keeping with today's strike theme on Labor History in Two, We'll hear about the 1934 textile strike and the 1947 harvester strike. I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show. We'll start the show with a brief clip from Your Rights at Work, the weekly radio show I host on WPFW here in Washington, D.C., when American prospect editor-at-large Harold Meyerson reacted to the news of the tentative settlement with some useful historical perspective. The two unions that had not reached agreement, the issue was their ability to go see a doctor and not have that counted against them. In other words, to have... uh, uh, not even paid leave in the settlement, but simply leave uh, to go and uh, s- see a doctor. So this this simply reflects what is all too common in American labor relations, which is punishing workers for having a life. And, you know, railroads, of course, were the first uh, interstate industry in the United States. And the history of uh railroad worker militants goes back to the 1870s. The government has not always supported that. Uh, In the strike of 1877, they sent in the army to bust it, which they did again in 1894. Uh, And it's been a challenge for railroad workers throughout American history as, you know, beginning shortly after the invention of railroads as such. So Uh, What the Biden administration did was really, I think, try to get something for the workers. Biden himself, the last time there was a a railroad uh, lockout and or strike in in 1992, voted against a congressional bill uh, requiring the workers to go back to work. So I think he tried to maintain really what is in one of the brightest parts of his presidency so far, which is its pro-worker, pro-union stance in the settlement he announced today. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. 
On this day in labor history, the year was 1934. That was the day that leading Southern textile employers met together in Greenville, North Carolina. They met to plan a coordinated response to the national textile strike. The Great Depression had ravaged the textile industry. Workers were subject to the, quote, stretch out. Fewer workers were expected to work at a faster pace to produce the same amount of products. Work in textile mills was already grueling. The stretch out made conditions even more unbearable. Fed up, 20,000 Southern workers walked off the job in July. From there, the numbers grew. On Labor Day, 65,000 workers in North Carolina joined the strike. Strikers confronted scabs and moved to close down mills not participating in the strike. They also disrupted railroad traffic. In response, the National Guard was called out against the strikers. Violence erupted between the strikers and armed police and strike breakers throughout the South and New England. The Southern owners decided it was time to marshal their own response to the strike. According to historian Jeremy Brecker, an army of 10,000 National Guardsmen was mobilized in Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Alabama, and Mississippi, supplemented by 15,000 armed deputies. But despite this show of force, the strike grew. More than 400,000 textile workers had walked off the job. In response, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration declared that the working conditions and wages in the industry should be studied. Although there were no guarantees for improvement, union leaders called off the strike. Much to the anger of many rank-and-file union members, one of the largest worker actions in U.S. history and one of the most important uprising of Southern labor was ended. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So potentially days away from either a strike or a lockout. Not sure how the the rail situation's going to go. Uh, hopefully, hopefully they they hammer this out. Hopefully the the workers get the the dignity and the respect that they deserve and are demanding. And hopefully the uh, the political system doesn't get in the way and well and and stick it to the workforce. Like like I keep like I said like I keep hearing. Uh, you know, you know, if those workers should just take it. No, how about these really profitable companies? How about them giving a little bit? Uh, anyway, here to share some thoughts on what the possibility of a strike might look like, and well, you know, historically what that's meant here in the country. That's why I've asked Eric Loomis to come talk with us, professor, historian, lawyers, guns and money blogger, also the author of one of the most important books ever written, A History of America in Ten Strikes. Highly recommended to everyone, Eric. Thanks for taking time for us. Oh, thank you. So potentially a rail strike, a rail lockout. Thoughts? Well, um, you know, I, I think that it, a couple thoughts. I mean, one is that the we, we often forget about the railroads when it comes to uh, the importance of transportation in the American economy. Um, you know, there's a big focus on truckers, uh, big focus on, uh, on, on the airlines, um, usually less of a focus on uh, supplies uh, on, the, on the giant ships um, that's changed in the era of, of COVID and supply chain difficulties. Uh, we often forget about the trains, but um, you know, trains make up a, a still a very large portion of freight movement in this country. And, and, you know, I think that, you know, more importantly um, you know, this is a relatively well-paid job, um, but in the, the workers themselves are not really, fighting that much over the uh, over wages it's that the working conditions are awful uh, 
yep. um, that people are quitting left and right. I mean, that that people are saying, you know, despite the money, this work is so long and so difficult and sometimes so dangerous that they're just not going to do it. And this this then places additional stress on the rest of the workforce. And so, you know, like a lot of strikes, I think we've seen in the last few years, um, it's it's a lot more about uh, it's a lot more about dignity than it is just about pay. Yeah, and that's exactly what we've been talking to the folks from the different unions about. Uh, it's about life work balance. It's about health care. And it's about safety on the job. In fact, you know, yesterday we talked with Jared Cassidy from the Smart uh, Smart Union saying, look, you know, over the last 10 days, they've had three deaths. Uh, so uh, to your point, it is a very dangerous job. Yeah. And there's no reason for it. And I think that one thing that's worth noting is that American railroads have always been more dangerous than those in Europe. I mean, and we're talking going back to the 19th century that uh, um, American railroads have traditionally resisted basic safety uh, upgrades. Um, they put profit over workers' lives. Um, and then this is, you know, let, of course, less people are dying today, or fewer people, I guess I should say, are, are dying today than did in 1880 or something like that. Um, however, uh, you know, the total number of workers that they employ is also far, far lower. So we don't hear about it uh, as often as, as we used to, the, these these deaths. But three deaths in 10 days, I mean, that's just utterly unacceptable. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and there's no, you know, it's, it's, it's hardly unreasonable. Yeah. Uh, for workers to say that, you know, they, they're not going to take their lives and, you know, they're not going to put their lives at risk every time they 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 go on the job, that it's time for the companies to step up and, and put the money in that, that needs to be invested for more employees and, and for better working conditions. Now, to highlight your point, I mean, back in the 70s, when I remember early 80s, when I remember jumping on and off trains as a kid. Uh, and I, I don't advocate for that. But, you know, I did that as, as a younger man. There were multiple people on trains. I think they said back then there were seven people on a on any given train. Now there are two. And the industry wants to go down to one person on a train, which is just mind blowing that you're talking trains that are miles long and much longer than they've ever been. Uh, that yeah. one person now is going to be responsible for all that. Yeah, I mean, it's terrible. I mean, what, you know, and, and I think that just on a basic humanity level, I mean, what happens if something happens to that, that, that one single worker on the train? I mean, the guy, he just gets sick, you know, doesn't even have to be that he breaks his leg or something. He just gets sick. He need you know, he, he's about to fall asleep. You know, uh, he, he needs, he needs to use the bathroom. I mean, there are a lot of, of pretty basic issues, which is why you don't put a single person on a job like that, especially as, as you point out, the trains are so large. And of course, the other side of this is that the train companies are tremendously profitable. Um, you know, that uh, in the, in, since the pandemic has started, um, you know, a lot of the train companies have reported record earnings. And so it's not as if, you know, it's a situation where the, the train companies are, are struggling. Um, yep. You know, it's this is just sheer uh, grotesque profit taking at its most greedy. Absolutely. You listen to the Rick Smith show here with Eric Lomas, professor, historian, lawyers, guns and money blogger, also the author of one of my favorite books, A History of America and Ten Strikes. We'll get links out on social media, how you can pick that up, preferably Powell's books, do that. Uh, but, you know, Eric, we're in this moment where, you know, that we got an election coming up and I see us in a, and I've been saying this for the last couple of days, 
uh, as we are you know, planning to embark on a multi-state tour to talk, get into rural areas and talk about working conditions and talk about the American dream and you know how that was destroyed and maybe how we re- reclaim some of it. It comes back to me to the labor movement. It comes back to workers being able to fight for better wages, hours, conditions, uh, as we see in the railroads. And I think the history of where what built the middle class, what built that prosperous working class of my parent, my grandparents' generation, I think is so important and why a book like yours in this moment, really important. Well, I mean, thanks. You know, I, I mean, I think that the, the, the you, you know, the, the hope here in, in writing a book like this, I guess, um, was to provide a little bit of, of, of deeper information than most people would usually get about the labor movement. Um, to do so in a way that's you know pretty accessible, and, and I think it's necessary right now because we see you know for instance record high approval ratings um, at least in theory uh, for uh, unions, um, which doesn't mean necessarily that everybody's going to run out and join a union, but there's an openness to it that I think you know my generation when it was younger, um, I'm a you know Gen X uh, you know guy and. And, you know, in the in the late 80s and in the 90s, you know, it was a very anti-union time and that kind of seeped into the general populace. And and I think I saw that a lot in my generation, whereas the younger generation today is a lot more open to the idea of unionization. They don't really see that American dream working for them. And and uh, that that that's, you know, for for people who, who, you know, did not go to college and people who have gone to college, you know, it, it kind of spread through the through the working class um, and, you know, the kind of growing college educated working class um and i and i you know and, and you see starbucks strikes and things of this nature um and you know the idea here is that you know people like you you know like the idea of unions but they don't necessarily know too much about how the labor movement was built and so that's what you you try to do is provide a little bit more information um because you know the, the idea here being that if if you can learn a little bit about uh, the way the labor movement was built and you can also learn about how it was how it succeeded and how it failed you know there are lessons that we can potentially apply to how we're organizing today yeah and and look i, I look at the younger generation who watch their parents you know suffer and struggle and deal with you know clinging to that uh, that that American dream and t- idea that if you work hard, you play by the rules, you get ahead. And and they watch their parents not get ahead, and they watch their parents continually get screwed over. And I think they've the lesson that they've learned from it is there's got to be a better way. Well, yeah, I mean they're getting messages. You know, it, it, you know if if you are a, I mean there's kind of like two messages going on here for two different groups, right? If you are a member of the working class that is not going on to college, right? You know, you're kind of told from the beginning uh, today almost that if you don't go to college, there's not much of a economic hope for you. That you're not going to get that kind of stable job. Um, you're kind of shuffled aside, and that is not only it's both morally and politically unacceptable. I mean, you can't build a stable society by saying that everybody has to get so-called higher education because some people's brains are hardwired to do certain sorts of jobs and or certain kinds of skills, and others have skills that are more college oriented and, and one is not better than the other. Um, and the kind of just disinterest in an industrial policy uh, for people who have not gone to college is, is, is disastrous. And we've seen this for, for decades. Um, and then if you are going on to college, you know, you're told, Oh, go ahead, take out those gigantic amount of student loans. Uh, it'll all pay off in the end. And, you know, uh, over the years, it might, but you're talking about then, you know, walking out of college with tens of thousands or sometimes even hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. 
Um, and, you know, you look at, uh, say, the Starbucks workers, for instance, who have been uh, unionizing, and a lot of them are, you know, college educated uh, young people who are, are making, you know, 14 bucks an hour at Starbucks, and that can't even service their loans. And so they're kind of in like a, a semi-permanent debt peonage. It's, it's, you know, so, so I think that almost all sectors of, of young people today are, you know, being sold a future that doesn't look very bright for them. Yeah, and this is where you know we're going to embark upon this 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 tour that we're going to take under the premise that look, you know, you need to have a mix of jobs. You need to have ones that that workers can get a, a living wage and support a family and do the things of past generations. And and I argue you do that through our unions, and you do that by undoing the bad policies of the past. Um, you know, and and look, I think we're at a moment, and I, I talked about this yesterday. I thought I think we're at a crossroads moment. Where you know you, the Biden administration is is moved on some infrastructure investments, they've moved on uh, reshoring some manufacturing, uh, promoting unions, and 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 all of that. I fear one election undoes all that, and and well keeps us on this path of of desperation, poverty, and 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 kind of the Hunger Games, if you will. Yeah, I mean the Republican Party is is basically running on these cultural issues, such as you know. Um, overturning abortion uh you know hating on uh on still hating on gay people and refusing to pass a bill that would guarantee gay marriage um you know this ridiculousness uh, claiming that teachers are indoctrinating kids into so-called critical race theory in schools because you know because they're trying to distract uh working people from uh you know from voting on economic issues, because on economic issues, Democrats are have much more have the back of workers, especially the Biden administration. Admittedly, Democrats have not always been very good on these on these issues. And, you know, we saw that in the Clinton years. We saw that in the in the, you know, in the Obama years to some extent. But, you know, as you point out, Biden has made a lot of positive um, gains and a lot, a lot of positive policy moves as president. Um, and you're right. The only way that continues is that Democrats keep winning because, you know, you have an extremist Republican Party um, that is deeply dedicated to overturning all rights for workers. Um, every year there's a Supreme Court case that does this a little bit more that is going to continue. Um, and, you know, they're just kind of biding their time right now, um, waiting for Republicans to take back over so they can re-up the war on workers. Yeah, and I look at Pennsylvania, where I live, as as you know, right on the front lines of that, because we've got a gubernatorial candidate uh, in Doug Mastriano, who uh, has said, you know, immediately right to work is going to pass here. They're going to cut education funding in half. They're going to, if they don't like the results of elections, they're going to just throw those out and overturn elections. I mean, antithetical to democracy, antithetical to what this country has always stood for. This is a guy who's with the, one of the two major parties in this country uh, running the, to be the governor of one of the main uh, the highest one of the higher unionized states in the country. Yeah, I mean, it, it becomes a little bit like, you know, in the, in the South after the Reconstruction. So we were talking about the 1880s and 1890s and 1900s, where because of a, uh, you know, that elites determined that they were going to hold on to power no matter what. Uh, and so they would disenfranchise black voters. They would, um, you know, they would disenfranchise white voters if they needed to, if they were poor and weren't voting the way they want, the way that the elites wanted. Um, and they basically killed democracy in the South for, you know, 80 years. And, um, and you know, applying that on a national level is pretty clearly the Republican Party's um, 
uh, overarching goal right now. Um, and that's why you see, you know, the first thing Republicans do when they take control over states that still have strong unions is get rid of the unions um, as much as they can by uh, passing these right, so-called right to work laws, because unions are the one um, institution that has organized working class people across races um, around economic questions. So you get rid of that. Um, that's a big blow to people who support democracy. And then you push through these anti-democratic reforms or, or changes, I should say, um, destroy elections uh, and uh, basically ensconce yourself in power for the next generation. I mean, that's what they did in the South in 1900. Um, and that's what the Republican Party and people like Mastriano want to do um, in 2022. So as we embark on this trip, you know, one of the frames that I've been saying for a very long time, we got to get out of this thinking of, of everything is right, left, uh, red, blue, whichever hat you bought in the last election is, is where we have to be when the reality is it's all always top down. Uh, it's always the wealth class versus everyone else. And they use the, these divisive issues to, to tear us apart. So as we go into these rural communities where Democrats have failed to, 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 to make inroads or even attempt to make inroads, uh, how do you what do you think plays in those areas? What 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 direction do you think we people would take should take? Yeah, it's tough now. I mean, I think that, um, you know, Democrats have largely ceded rural areas Um you know, I think the only really rural areas in America anymore that Democrats um, play strongly in are the uh, Latino and, and indigenous areas of the American West, such as in New northern New Mexico and, and parts of Colorado um, on the reservations and then in Vermont and uh, western Massachusetts. Um, you know, in all pretty much all other parts of the country, uh, rural areas are mostly forgotten about by Democrats. Um, there were some very bad policy decisions, but what this has also created is a kind of uh, perfect storm of misinformation, um, violence, um, and increasing and growing intimidation of 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 people who um, you know are Democrats in this area in these areas um, because they're you know, being afraid to run for office, being afraid to stand up with a sign, being afraid to put a bumper sticker on your car, um, an actual legitimate fear of violence. Um, and and I think that um, you know the first thing that has to happen is that Democrats have to come together. I think in these areas. Um, with support of state parties and support of people in the cities uh, to, you know, create a kind of mutual aid almost in, in these, these cities and towns. I mean, I know Western Pennsylvania very, very well. Um, I lived out in Clarion County um, for a, a while. Um, my wife lived out there for, for many years. She was teaching at the university there. And, you know, Democrats are afraid to uh, uh, afraid to even show their face um, because they are legitimately fearful of violence. And so I think that I think that it has to be a combination of policies for the working class, but also a bigger strategy to show that Democrats um, are willing to stand up for their beliefs and not just allow Republicans to intimidate them. Because the only way you stand up to bullies is to push back. Absolutely. It uh, takes and, a lot of courage. Yeah. And the premise that I, I've I've come up with, and maybe you'll agree or disagree, uh, is that, you know, when when we were strongest as a country, we had strong unions in these rural areas. These factories that held were the glue that held these communities together were heavily unionized, where workers had had rights and shared prosperity. And as that was broken through bad trade deals, through horrible tax policy and through Wall Street and, and, and corporate greed, uh, that's all been broken up. And, you know, the 80s brought us hyper individualism. Hooray for me and the heck with everyone else. Greed is good and all of that stuff. And we've we've been ripped apart. Yeah, and I think that you really see that if you go deep, deep dives into these regions that 
uh, rural areas that were formerly very strongly Democratic and have now become very strongly Republican or even you know extremist right. Um, places like northern Idaho, for instance, um, but also rural western Pennsylvania and, you know, a, a lot of Ohio and places like this, increasingly in northern Minnesota. That's exactly right. I mean, basically, you destroy the economy, which then destroys or attacks the, the culture of these places. You tell anybody who can get out of there to get out of there. You leave behind bitterness and anger, and you also take away the institutions that can contribute to making sure that people don't get suckered into voting um, uh, for white supremacy, that that make sure that people uh, realize that they have things in common with other working people in America, um, you know, and and that, that you know the unions is what did that, and the Democratic Party not that long ago had a real base in rural America, and and that's all gone now, and. You know, Democrats deserve a lot of the blame for that, particularly in the Carter and Clinton years um, where they laid the groundwork for this. Your Larry Summers and and, and uh, Rahm Emanuel's of the world uh, who just didn't care about these areas. And, uh, you know, and we're seeing the, the wages of that uh, error today. Yeah. So last last question I've got for you. Any any suggestions, any advice as we venture in into these areas? Because I think you have to you have to tell the story that that people have clung to, uh, which is where I think, you know, Trump you know, was the blind squirrel that found the nut uh, that, that people want to recreate what that golden era was of economic prosperity and opportunity and identity. So any any advice? Well, the only thing I would say is the same thing I would say to lots of people who are wondering what's going on in these areas, which you, is you have to listen, right? You have to listen. You have to have the conversations. They can be hard conversations and you can't just throw somebody aside because they don't agree. You know, they have a position on some issue, a social issue, let's say that you might find to be disturbing, you know, whether it's race or, or sexuality or whatever, you know, you have to, you have to build toward common ground um, you have to meet people where they are rather than where you would want them to be. And, and, and that's a matter, you know, these are basic organizing principles and it's a matter of listening and, and having the conversations. And a lot of people just don't feel listened to. Yeah. Um, and, and they have a good reason to feel that way. No, see, I, I think the workplace is where we have to start organize there, build that kind of cohesiveness and that kind of community and everything else I think will, will fall in the line. But Eric, I appreciate the, the conversation. I appreciate the thoughts as always. Great stuff, my friend. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, good stuff. Eric Loomis, uh, make sure you check out the book, The History of America in 10 Strikes, uh, one of the best reads out there. Remember, if you miss any portion of the program, grab the podcast. Never miss a moment. Share with your friends. Like all of that. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick, Email Rick. at rick at Show.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1947. That was the day workers at the International Harvester Plant in Louisville, Kentucky, had had enough. They had just rejected a pay scale lower than that of harvester workers elsewhere. In her recent article for Leo Weekly, historian Tony Gilpin refers to the lower pay as the Southern Differential. Harvester workers walked off the job in a 40-day strike. 
black and white Louisville workers were united in a rare form of solidarity. International Harvester had had a long labor-hating history. Its forerunner had been the McCormick Reaper Works, the site that sparked the 1886 Haymarket incident in Chicago. Harvester had been able to keep the unions out until the farm equipment workers of the CIO finally organized there in 1941. And the FE followed Harvester as they attempted to escape to the Union-Free South. The FE successfully organized the new Louisville plant just two months before the strike. Workers learned quickly that they were paid much less making the same equipment as their brothers in Chicago, Indianapolis, and elsewhere. Gilpin adds that the FE literature forthrightly stated, quote, once the Negro and white workers were united, the low-wage system of the South would collapse. Workers pressed for their demands and appealed to area farmers for support. They stressed that farmers would not pay less for equipment simply because local workers were paid less. Black and white workers picketed together, ate together, and planned their strike together at their new union hall. Harvester initially tried to red bait FE leaders. When that failed, the company was forced to grant steep wage increases. Gilpin cites FE News, which reported, quote, two smashing victories in hand, one over International Harvester, the other over the Mason-Dixon low-wage line. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I asked my baby for her hand. How'd you like to marry a trucking man? She said, this can never be, it's a railroad life for me. Then I told her I'd be nice, I'd even bring her paradise. She said, that's fine, but in my mind, it's a railroad life for me. I want to lean out the window from the high cab seat, hang my feet. Wind and the sleep. I wanna wave to the people as I roll by. Oh, where the iron is high, 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 out where the iron is high. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do. Like it in your podcast app, pass it along, leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. And special thanks this week to the Rick Smith Show. As I said, that's a daily labor radio show. It's heard across the country, and it's available as a podcast. Just search for the Rick Smith Show. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history. And see you next time. I want to lean out the window from the high cab seat. Hang my face in the wind and the sleet. I want to wave to the people as I roll by. All where the iron is high, 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 high. All where the iron is high. 
all he left was mold and bones. She said that was his destiny, if the railroad alone.